Welcome to the Man Up, Man Down podcast, presented by Volker Baluda and David Pawsey. We discuss the pressures and challenges faced by men approaching middle age that we're often too embarrassed to speak about with our friends. You can find us online at www.manupdown.com. Enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Welcome to another episode of Man Up, Man Down. Today we welcome Chris Stein. It's actually a German last name, at least it sounds like it. it. Yes. It means stone for, for those who are not familiar with, with um, German. So Chris is the current interim CEO of Fathers Development Foundation and Director of Marketing, Fundraising and Communications at Future Men. He has worked with young people at risk of school exclusion, of falling out of education, training and employment, with young offenders, with expected fathers and around men's mental health for just under 20 years. The landscape of men's health issues and the topic of masculinity have changed a great deal over the years. And while the nature of Chris' work has changed as he has moved into more strategic roles, the core focus has not. Supporting boys, young men and men to make improvements for themselves while also supporting change at a structural level. Chris, First of all, welcome to the podcast. We, we're delighted to have you on. Um, as we were just saying before we went live, I don't know when we last spoke. It must be, feels like, you know, six months ago. But So we had a good chat before, but fill us in a little bit in terms of, if you say, who you are, what you do, and how you got to do what you're doing as well. Well, firstly, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, come onto your podcast. Um, as you say, you know, this that's been my career arc. So for a long time, I, I, I wanted to work with young people. I suppose as a person who has experienced, like many people, their own challenges in life, I got to a point where I felt really quite compelled to use those experiences in a positive manner. But in the, well, early 2000s, the ceiling for income for youth workers and youth services was really low. And it's continued to be low. And, and it's it's actually quite an indictment on wider society that youth services are so poorly recognized at a, a fundamental community level because the services that are provided through youth services act as a, a kind of medium space between family and school. And they're a space, the youth services are a space where young people can come together in a very loosely structured, I mean, the, the, a lot of the, the services that are delivered in, in, in youth hubs are, are structured, but there's also an element where it's just coming in, building social networks, building social capital, building social skills, encountering and engaging with young people from fields outside of your normal realm. So at the time in the early 2000s, when I was entering the workforce, the, 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 the income ceiling, as I said, was quite low. So I, I was very fortunate to be involved in a project in uh, Hackney in East London, where we were looking at services around uh, young people, around drugs and alcohol, sexual health, mental health. And this project was really uh, a vanguard project at the time. It's, it still would be considered so today, to be honest. And rather than asking young people to go to community services, we brought community services into school. And this was uh, quite a big step change. It was under the former government, uh, former labor labor government at the time, and there were certain agendas that were available to to, to leverage. 
but it was a transformative project. But it was my first entry point into working with young people. And when you're working with young people who are at risk of school exclusion, whether that's fixed term or permanent, I didn't know this at the time, but the, the overrepresentation of boys and young men is significant. Uh, when you're thinking about people who are at risk of uh, entering into the criminal justice system, significantly overrepresented by by men. And I, when I say the word re- overrepresented, I'm not suggesting for a moment that this is where we need a quota system to represent equality. I'm just making an observation. Okay. Uh, I want to be very clear on that. And then that kind of, so that started my journey into working very closely with boys and young men. And what was really interesting at the time, and I didn't know this because I didn't have that perspective. I, this was my first entry point into this as a project manager as well. My job was not actually to work directly with young people. My job was to do this networking piece of work with these community services and to navigate all of this with schools. But what we saw very clearly, or what other people saw, because again, you you see what you see, but you if you don't have experience, you have no baseline. But other people were saying to me, Chris, there's something going on in this project that you're 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 delivering in these schools that we don't see elsewhere. And I said, well, what is that? And they said, well, it, it seems to be that, that these boys are coming to this space. With, the project was called the Health Hut. So it was a space in the school where all these services were delivered from. But I was sitting in that space as the project manager. And ultimately, the boys themselves were choosing to come into this space basically to chat with me. I was a kind of a, 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 an interesting character, I suppose, because, you know, I'm this white middle-class guy, but because I, I'm, I'm American at birth, I have an interest, you know, I'm, I, there's an intrigue there about America as a culture. At the time, you know, hip-hop, R&B, these are big things. And because of my accent, they don't necessarily know where I fit in a social strata. I'm just, I'm just there, you know? I don't have an accent that says I'm upper-class, middle-class, working-class, so, so th- these these boys were coming in from all sorts of backgrounds, and we're chatting about all sorts of things. And all, and and these services are watching this stuff happen, and they're saying, "This is not what we see normally." So I was like, "Okay, this is kind of interesting." And and of course, it gave me an in, a, a, a lead in point to these other areas around sexual health, mental health, drugs and alcohol, and and within sexual health, of course, you know, you've got sex relationships, education, ideas of consent and communication with drugs and alcohol and mental health. The crossover is very, very broad. And uh, and underneath all of that is sort of socioeconomic factors that play a massive role, as well as the intersections with race and sexuality, gender identification, and so on. And then after that, I moved into working with the Youth Defending Services, and that took me into a more acute space where now it was very clearly multiple and complex needs, really uh, kind of intersecting with ideas of violence and violence being kind of the end point of this linear path, which goes through aggression, back to anger, back to hurt, back to unmet need. And underlying all of that is fear. You know, it's this really linear path. And what you see at the end result is violence, which is completely unacceptable from wider society's point of view. But rewinding that 
there is a fear underneath all of that and trying to explore that fear and supporting, as I said, predominantly boys and young men to understand what that fear is, be able to articulate it, to acknowledge that, which we encapsulate in the word vulnerability. And it's really important, I think, uh, to understand when people say be vulnerable, I think it's like, okay, well, what does that actually fundamentally mean? I know I've struggled with this myself. And I think the way I interpret it personally, and also what I've seen professionally, is that from a from potentially, I, I speak from a, a male perspective, because vulnerability will mean something different to females. And of course, it does intersect with all the other things that I talked about before. But it's like, what is permissible to boys and young men to show? And it is kind of mad, sad, or glad, right? It's okay to be happy. That's great. That's great. It's it's okay to be, well, it's not necessarily okay to be sad as a young a boy or young man, like like upset, but it's, it is quite acceptable amongst their peers to be mad, you know, and angry. You know, this is this is this is an acceptable way of expressing oneself. But the vulnerability is to understand what is triggering that anger, you know, um, and that is that's a key part of that process of development. So I, I've I've said an awful lot there. I, I've gone on a massive ramble. Uh, and you're gonna. I, I have a tendency to do this. Well, uh, to be honest, that that's usually a bit of a mandate for the podcast is uh, someone needs to have a bit of a ramble. But uh, it was a very insightful ramble. Um, I saw Volker taking a few notes there. So uh, did you have any questions, Volker? I mean, vulnerability is an interesting one. And, and, and the comparison, right? There's there's so much in there. Well, I, I'll tell you what. Why don't, why don't I talk about, why don't I talk about um, a piece of work that I did with our service users at FutureMan? So a, a little bit more about future men and then a piece of work I did around the topic of masculinity because this was really insightful because of what I've sort of shared there is my own personal and professional reflections. But let's hear about the reflections of the boys, young men and men that we work with at Future Men. So Future Men, who, who are we? We are a London-based charity that works with boys, young men and men at transitional moments in their lives. What do I mean by transitional moments? So... Uh, transitioning from primary to secondary school. This is a chronological transition. You know, you go from year seven in primary school, uh, year six in primary school to year seven in, in secondary school. And on the face of it, this is like, you know, just uh, getting older. But socially, biologically, uh, and emotionally, it's a significant change. And it intersects with adolescence. Yes, it might be about an 11-year-old, and they're not technically, if you want, adolescent, but they're, they're pre-adolescent, and some of them are in adolescence. You know, We know that, that puberty is not a, okay, it's my 13th birthday, and look at the hairs under my arms moment. It, it doesn't work like that, right? It's very, it's very different for different people. So it's this double transition. And also going from being the the proverbial uh, big fish in a small pond back to being a small fish in a big pond. And that pond is actually completely different. You know, when you're thinking about a primary school, it's a, a very caring, safe space. I'm not saying that secondary schools 
are not caring and that they're not safe, but they are in different ways because the expectations rise. And if you're in year seven and you're looking at the year 11s, you're, you're seeing really kind of young men who are entering into wider society, whatever that looks like, whether it's going to be in college, some of them might be going into training and employment, but you're seeing a completely different segment now. So for, 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 for boys going from primary to secondary school, it's a lot more than just a chronological advancement. It's also a much wider social advancement. So that's one, one area of work. And we, we deliver a program called the Boys Development Program, uh, which is a six-week program to support boys uh, with communication skills, conflict management, goal setting, and we talk about masculinity. Another strand of our work is that we work with fathers. And uh, so that's obviously a transitional moment when your, your whole status in society changes from being a man to still being a man, but also having this additional responsibility as a father now. And there we we have a suite of support services that we, we deliver. So we work with young fathers, fathers uh, 13 to 25. We run uh, particular programs called Caring Dads, where we work with people who have perpetrated uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence. Um, but we take a more public health approach. So nowhere do we condone that level of behavior. But very similarly to the idea of vulnerability, we try to rewind the clock a little bit and kind of understand where this once baby with, with nappies on has now transitioned into this space here. Um, we're, not, we're not psychodynamic practitioners. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But we, we do start with this position of let's hear your story. And we, 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 run, uh, we run a number of other programs within that. We have a, a course called Future Dads, which is for fathers-to-be, which is a one-day course where we look at the uh, skills around parenting, so bathing, winding, holding, changing, all of that kind of stuff. But we also a lot a, a lot of uh, space to thinking about what type of father do you want to be? Where do you get your cues for fatherhood? We talk about relationships and we break that down into relationship with partner, relationship with friends and colleagues and self, because we have a relationship with ourselves every single moment. And then we, we go into the, to the topic of mental health and we talk about uh, stress, anxiety and depression and why parenting might be a trigger moment for these types of expressions. And we talk about budgeting as well as a, as a parent. And then we also finally, in terms of our father's work, we advocate on top, uh, for fathers by, we offer secretariat support at the all-party parliamentary group on fatherhood. And we run a uh, kind of webinar, live-based live discussion group called Agenda Dad, which we host on Zoom and we publicize via LinkedIn. Then we also uh, operate in the communities, uh, our local communities, in two different ways. We have a, a team called the Community Engagement Outreach Team, where we do outreach work. Uh, so we go into various settings and we engage boys and young men where they are. Some of that might actually lead to like unsociable hours delivery of work. We also work uh, with uh, pupil referral units. So these are boys who have been excluded from mainstream education and we're supporting them in their, their new settings and we're supporting them as much as possible, go back into mainstream. And then we run a couple of youth hubs as well where we do positive activities. 
So that's what we do as future men. And our vision is really a, a better future for every boy, every man, and everyone. We're an inclusive organization that seeks uh, equality. Hello, it's Volker here. I hope you enjoy this episode. You might not realize that I have been coaching for almost a decade through both third parties and private clients. During that time, I've worked with brands such as General Electric, Imperial Brands, DHL and Pepsi. However, this year I'm putting a big emphasis on growing my private coaching practice, improving lives of middle-aged men in leadership positions. So if you hit midlife transition point and you might be a bit stuck or looking to improve your work-life balance, your career or productivity, you want to build a new habit or you just want to become a better version of yourself, please hit me up. You can reach me on folkatopnatus, that's folkat, O-B-N-A-T dot U-S, or LinkedIn, whatever is easiest. Thanks, and now, back to the episode. Wait, where were you based? You're based all over the country, or...? Uh, no, we're London focused. Most of our we 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 are uh, significantly represented in Westminster, Lambeth, Lewisham, Southwark. Uh, we've done work. We we're doing work in Wandsworth, um, Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea as well. So some years back, I ran a series of focus groups with representatives from each of those strands. So I wanted to hear from boys in schools, boys in the community those who were not in education, training, and employment, and, and fathers, about their understanding of masculinity. And some key themes really came out. So many of them not necessarily that surprising, but very sort of confirming what I may have thought and what others within the team may have thought. So broadly speaking, the younger the groups were, the more they held what might be termed traditional norms. So men need to be strong or it is difficult for men to 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 share their emotional landscape there was one boy who highlighted so and again when you're talking about those adolescent boys you get some who look like boys and some who look like men so one of the one of the boys who looked like a boy was relaying within that context an incident where he was slapped by a girl in front of his friends and he said I just didn't know what to do. I had no idea as to what to do because my boys were behind me saying, come on, you got to do something. The girl was sort of standing there saying, come on, you got to do something. But I can't, I can't slap her back. You know, I, 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 I am actually, this is checkmate for me. Whichever way, I, it's a paradox. Whichever way I go, I am going to lose social credibility, social status. Ultimately, he chose. I think he made the right choice, and he didn't do anything, and he backed away. But you know, it was you could hear in his voice uh, the conflict, and this was you know that had happened some months before, so it had certainly resonated for him. When we got into the spaces of of fathers, they were saying things like, you know, what I can't be bothered anymore with what brand of trainers I wear. Uh, I've got other responsibilities. So things like fighting for social status where actually it may have looked like a fight at some points, you know, a physical fight. I just don't get involved with that anymore. I don't have time for that. And also some of the fathers were single fathers, so they were sole carers for their children. And in there, of course, 
in those uh, experiences, they were saying, well, I have to occupy kind of two gender roles at the same time. I have to occupy to some degree what might be seen as being more prototypically uh, indicative of femininity, uh, being caring and soft and gentle and kind. But I also have to maybe hold it down as what we might say is more of a traditional uh, role, being that kind of strong and stoic type of person. So it was a really interesting piece of work and focus group. Some of the standouts that really came through were also the intersections with cultural dynamics, religious dynamics, socioeconomic dynamics, and and again, maybe maybe few surprises within all of that. There were there were young people who were saying, no, 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 uh, definitely housework is the domain of women. Okay. And there were some intersectional reasons for why they were saying that. So I suppose within within all of this, we get back to kind of what does masculinity mean? And it's and it's a bit like you could say, well, you know, ask each individual. There are, of course, overarching themes. There are definitely overarching themes, but there are, is a lot of intersectionality that comes into that. And I suppose it's kind of no real surprise, really, because as much as we are a biological entity, we are also a psychological entity and a social entity. And we're constantly intersecting with ourselves all the time. You know, I, I'm sure if I ask both of you right now, whether your concepts of masculinity have changed over the years, you might fundamentally say yes, you know, um, and that will be because of your own physiology growing up and the experiences that you had, and also the cultural norms, societal norms that are changing around us all the time. Men Up, Men Down is sponsored by Welldoing. It's a great platform for finding a therapist or counselor. They only accept verified professionals and they make it really easy to find one who is right for you. You can also use their personalized matching service so your availability, budget and needs are expertly matched with just the right person. If you didn't already know, success in therapy is down to making a great match with your counselor and the people at Welldoing really know how to make that happen. Plus, they have loads of stories, videos and interviews to support your mental health. Take a look at welldoing.org. No, I, I, I'd agree with that. I think there, you know, there, 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 there's enormous change. So I think it's, it's, it's great that, that you're doing that work, right? So first of all, I think, you know, the positive masculinity, and it's interesting that you say some, 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 uh, if I say I'm trying to piece it together in my head because, you know, you, you, you have the cultural differences, you have a religious influence, right? And then you have the societal influence. And whilst, you know, I would say, you know, what, what you said as well, the, the society has changed, right? So the, the view of what a man should be or could be like has, has changed. And, you know, especially when you talked about the courses, I never had these courses available when I became a dad, right? I, I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing, quite frankly, right? I probably still don't today, but I'm now conscious that I'm winging it, right? But when you have a baby, it's it's slightly different. It is it is a changing moment. You know, you have conflict interests with 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 work, with with baby, with 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 your partner as well. So so that sense, that's why I was wondering where 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 you located as well, because I think you know I could have definitely benefited from that. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking where, where where I was going with that, but I think the, you know, you you said that some people some men still think you know women belong in the kitchen and and so on, mm -hmm. which 
you know, I think in, in some societies, you know, whether it's religiously based or whether it's cultural based, it's still very, very strong, right? And and, and breaking that down, particularly in, in London where you have different ethnicities, right? Different different backgrounds. I think it must be a very, very challenging job. Yeah, definitely there are challenges because there has to be a, 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 a caring approach to all of this and, and simply wagging fingers at people and saying, you know, you've got to do better. In terms of in terms of wider behavioral change, you know, there's always this interaction between the agent or group of agents and then the structures and systems that they operate in. And this is where the work that we do in fatherhood, which I personally see as really pivotal in this this space of transformative masculinity. And I think we do as an organization, but I just want to make it clear that this is a personal thing as well. So in our space, in our in our work with fathers, we're working to build their 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 capabilities around fatherhood in terms of the skills that they have, in in terms of the knowledge that they have, so that they can do practical care. But equally, we recognize that just by saying, right, now that you have these practical skills, go off and use them. But I only get two weeks of statutory paternity leave. That's a huge barrier. But but I have I have what is quite a senior role, and I and I'm on call for lots of things. And this is a you know I'm at work an awful lot. This is a, ma- a major barrier. And so we this is where we do this advocacy work as well. And within Agenda Dad, we have chosen to uh, in this round of Agenda Dad, which is this online space that we're convening. We are looking at three policies at this particular moment before we then revamp and, and, and look at other things. But the, the first three policies that we're looking at are mental health screenings for fathers. So at the current policy is that uh, a father can receive, can be offered a mental health screening if their partner is uh, in receipt of specialist mental health care. So for postpartum depression. So that might sound like, well, that's a pretty good offer, but actually in order for a birth partner or a mother to receive specialist care, these are kind of, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, this is a bit of bro science, but you know, they need to be aware of what postpartum depression is, the, the signs, the symptoms. They have to acknowledge it for themselves. They have to go out and seek support. They have to be triaged for support. They have to be offered support. They have to accept support. And then they have to be in that. that. That's a lot of steps that your birth partner has to go through before you're even offered one. And that's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're, we're talking here about kind of men's mental health. We're talking about a transitional moment. We're talking about somebody who is potentially quite activated. And yet we don't have a structural space for this. Now, Having said all of that, of course, this is where the, so that's the structural side. The agency side is, well, you know what? I have a phone. I can go and look at apps. I, I can I can look at the NHS One U campaign and I can do that myself. But that's not a universal offer here. And that's, so this is that universal offer that we're looking for in terms of mental health screening. We know that, that statutory paternity leave, it's just not necessarily fit for purpose. For some of your audience members, they might be surprised that it's only 20 years old. Back in 2002, there wasn't a statutory paternity offer. And over time, of course, it's now, it's now not fit for modern society. 
So we're in that space, we're looking to back the work of agencies like uh, Fatherhood Institute, Pregnant Then Screwed, Music Football Fatherhood, who are really leading to this campaign on six weeks of paternity leave at, at 90% pay as well, because there's a huge segmentation when you look at income and who takes up the paternity leave offer as it stands. So currently, those uh, individuals who are earning about 60K plus are taking up the, the two weeks paternity leave at an 86% rate. It's not 100%, but 86 is not too bad. Those earning 20K and under, it, it's way less than a third. And this is because the statutory pay not even commensurate with their their baseline pay. You know, statutory pay is not um, national living wage. So, so they don't have the, they might not have the financial means. And if we go around saying, hey, dad, you need to do more, but we don't understand the structures in which they're operating, actually that dad might be doing exactly what he needs to be doing, which is to go back out and try to, you know, his, his partner's probably at home recovering after an extremely physiologically stressful event. And, and he's trying to go out and keep things ticking over. That's not then not doing a good job. That's doing the job that's in front of them, you know? And then the last thing we're looking at is birth registration, which is a quite a specific circumstance, but there are about sort of 29 to 30,000 birth registrations a year, which don't feature a father. And that leads to significant gaps in terms of legal rights. It also leaves gaps for responsibilities. And there are lots of reasons for why this is the case, but we want to see if we can increase birth registrations through various mechanisms. So sorry, is that to give the father better rights or is that to, um, so the father lives up to their responsibilities? You Very good, David. Uh, <laughs> look at the big brains on Brett, you know? <laughs> And it's a, a you know it's a nuanced discussion. It is a nuanced discussion, and 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 it's a bit of both. What is known is that those those fathers who are on the birth certificate play a significant role in various ways with their with their children. So to some degree, it's seeing fatherhood as a protective factor. Now, before I go on, and before anybody gets triggered about how there are some families where actually dad might be a risk factor totally get it. And that is part of the nuance of that discussion. There are also times, maybe far fewer, I don't know, but but just to maybe go with a sort of conventional wisdom space, there are times when the mother is a risk factor. Okay. So I just want to put that out there. However, there are reasons for why birth registration is a key issue from a, a rights perspective and a responsibility perspective. It's an area that needs to be examined. But at the moment, if if a, a birthing couple is not married, then the mother has a, a, a right to register a birth without the knowledge of the, the father. I mean, we're talking like 5% of all births here. So it's, it's, it's a small percentage, but it's also a significant number. And also what we do know is that the profile of the mothers who are sole registrants, because we don't know what the, the fathers are because they're not on the registration form, but we have a general profile for uh, sole registrant mothers, which is 
generally younger, about 20% of them are under the age of 21, uh, have particular health concerns, like 63% of them are supposed to be known to be smokers. Socioeconomic factors play a role. And therefore, you can kind of extrapolate from this and create a narrative around the risk factors for that child. Now, that does not necessarily mean that dad's going to come in and and take away all of that. One might assume that actually they kind of might have some similar risk factors around them. But until we know, we don't know. And, and equally thinking about capacity that's required for raising children. And also when you're talking about younger parents, the reality is that, you know, touch wood, they're going to they're gonna be in that child's life for far longer than older parents, right? Just because of the natural course of life. But the, I suppose the other thing that, 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 that dawns on me when thinking about fatherhood and all these segments that I'm talking about is also that correlation back to the idea of masculinity. Because what we can see in terms of parental leave is that there are many great examples of corporates that are offering things like equal parenting leave, six months, six months. So let's say that you're a child growing up in a household and you're, especially those early years, that first thousand and one days aspect. So you're, you're, you're an infant and your first year of life has equal contact, mother and father. The general trend is that, that those families where there is significant involvement in parenting by both parents, that trend continues. So what does that do to your concept of men? If you see your dad engaged significantly and consistently over time, what does that do to your set? If you're a boy, you're, you're modeling. What does that do if you're a girl thinking about how this informs your choice of partners, boyfriends, and, and longer term? You've, you've triggered quite a few sort of thoughts there. I mean, sort of going back to the birth certificate issue and what you sort of said about, well, you know, violence is the end result, but there's these stages of why does someone react like that and, well, the concept of masculinity, etc., and I guess if you've grown up and your father isn't even on your birth certificate, that's automatically going to make you grow up with, well, a chip on your shoulder, for, for, for want of a better word. The other thing I was going to say, actually, you're still, whilst you've got these innovative companies, you're still creating a bit of a socioeconomic differentiation because it's almost like, the people that are in, you know, in inverted commas, the best jobs are going to be the ones that get offered that sort of thing. Whereas almost the people that need it, you know, the, the economic groups that need it the most are the ones that won't get offered that. And I mean, like, I I did actually have a, a temporary role um, with Hammersmith and Fulham Social Services many years ago. I mean, I, I'd say a sort of a lot of my experience in inverted commas has come from watching top boy on netflix but you know there there is very much you know the dynamic of you know parents are continually out because they've got to be to earn to survive so whether you know often it's like well the father is there but they're always working well and both the mother but then you know and so that's where gangs are kind of like oh, well, you know, we'll look after you, you know, don't worry. And 
I'm, I'm also watching um, what's called South London at the moment as well. And it, it's basically about how many great footballers have been produced in South London. But it also does a really good job of sort of saying, well, it's either football or you go into a gang. There's a couple of footballers where, you know, there's one who's now playing for Liverpool, but there's the one who was arguably a better player, but got involved in the gang lifestyle. And, you know, it does seem to be that, sadly, you know, the die is cast very early on. And, you know, sort of such minuscule factors of, of, you know, what job your parents happen to get or, you know, can have such a an impact on the kind of father you end up being. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, I suppose, underpinning all of this is a, a, a universal human desire for, for validation. We, we will seek that. And then there's also that kind of intersectionality with maybe some of cognitive biases that seek to the path of least resistance as well. And if the path of least resistance takes you in one direction, your life could look quite challenging. And if your path of least resistance goes in another direction, it could look really fruitful. I'm not suggesting, I suppose when you're thinking about the development of an individual, there is a nature-nurture debate that has been going on since probably before we could like formally communicate, <laughs> like 10,000 years ago. And the idea of a complete tabula rasa, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but I, from what I understand, there is an idea that actually we do have some character traits that we have more tendencies towards than another. But equally, there is scope for development through cultural narratives and information and expectations and, and norms that will trigger those propensities one way or the other, as I was saying before. But that idea of safety, security, validation, social status, social capital, I mean, social capital is often framed as an idea which is purely positive, but it doesn't have to be, you know, and it depends upon who's looking at the outcomes of this social capital as well. These are big ideas, but these are kind of core ideas that we are grappling with as a service delivery organization every single day. And, and when you're looking at fundamental behavior change, it's, you know, it, 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 can, it takes multiple inputs to, to do so. And we're really proud of the work that we do as future men, because I can say, having worked in the statutory sector with young offenders, that I have an understanding for what a, 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 an acute case looks like where, where families have multiple and complex needs. And I know from looking, I, I work more strategically now than delivery, but I, I know the caseloads that, that the team has, and I know the, the, the details of that. And as a charitable organization, there are many of the cases that we're working at that remind me very much of the cases I've worked at when uh, had when I was working at a statutory level. And I know that you know behavior change takes a long time. But behavior development takes a long time. And, and so to, to change course and maybe even use the term, term course correction takes multiple inputs. And we, we are offering that positive aspect of, of a viewpoint around masculinity. 
And then I just want to sort of highlight that we we have an underpinning of what we term seven positive characteristics of masculinity. And, and these characteristics are not necessarily the preserve of, of men, but it's about being good people. And it comes from decades of experience in delivering services. So, so those characteristics are empathy, curiosity, nonviolence, inclusiveness, resourcefulness, resilience, and reflectiveness. And again, as I say those, it's probably quite clear that these are not about masculinity per se. It is about a holistic view of, of any individual. However, we have found that often these characteristics are not fully developed in some of the boys and young men that we're working with. And we're not looking to build all of those those seven characteristics up to sort of 100% that that would be unrealistic necessarily. But looking at how each of those characteristics can then inform another characteristic and how, for example, nonviolence is actually an expression of resourcefulness, you know, because it takes resource to be nonviolent. Maybe there is a tendency towards violence, which is actually about poor internal emotional regulation, the ability to manage stress. So everything informs the next thing, so to speak. I don't know if it's a question or a rant. I mean, it, it, you touched on it at the start of our conversation, the fact that funding under this government for a number of services has been cut back. You know, you are an organisation that is sort of, you know, reliant on charity. Should government be doing more? Should all, you know, companies be doing more? I mean, what, you know, what is the alignment and, and well, how can if there are companies listening or individuals listening who would like to support your cause, how can they get in touch? You you have the, the, the private sector, you have the statutory sector, and you have the charitable sector. The private sector is obviously about providing goods and services to the, the general public and individuals can self-select as to whether they're going to engage with those goods or services. Statutory sector is kind of about how do we apply the policies that are created through parliament? You know, on a standard distribution curve, those policies are going to be beneficial to 80%. Okay. I, that, I, you know, I'm using that 80, 20 rule. And then, the, then, then there are groups of people who fall outside of the, that 80% uh, for whom these uh, statutory services um, and, and that they, that they might benefit and, and that fall into gaps. As I said before, some of the, the cases that we hold don't meet statutory thresholds, but have a need for significant support. And that's where that charitable sector comes in. And I think that having a, a better understanding of what role that the, the charitable sector plays, and also, you know, the charitable sector has to hold itself to account. We have to stand up and we have to be rigorous. We have to be evidence-informed, evidence-based as much as possible. We have to talk about our work in a in an accurate and, and reflective manner. So I'm I'm not gonna say that the, the charitable sector can just go out there and shake cans and expect lots of money. That's not how it works either. But I think that that collectively 
there needs to be a, a greater understanding of that the charitable charitable sector more widely and how corporations can play a role and that that corporate social responsibility of course has a has a a, a necessary mandate to do things like reduce their co2 emissions by going paperless totally get it but there's also an understanding that corporations exist within a wider social structure and there might be an, a moral imperative that might not be an ethical imperative you know uh, that is something that's culturally normative but there's a moral imperative to spread the benefits of that private sector into charitable sector so we do our work in terms of funding applications and writing to grants and trusts uh, but we also seek the uh, support of the corporate sector to be able to deliver support to these multiple and complex needs at various levels that we we know intrinsically will make a, an advantageous benefit to wider society, but we can't do it alone. Chris, there's so much, if I say to sum up, I mean, we, we, we're unfortunately running out of time. It was a lot of input, right? They, 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 you know, I took lots of notes here as, as I did in our first conversation, and there's so much more to discuss. Happy to come back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much we, you know, just paternity leave, right? Just I could go on about that and, and go on and on about that because I, I had to take holidays and stuff. But it was a pleasure to have you there. I think a lot of food for thought, definitely for myself to 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 take away and hopefully for the listeners as well. So if people want to find out more about you and the organizations you, you work with, what what's the best way of, of getting in touch and, you know, may, maybe, you know, attending a session or, you know, helping out or volunteering or what, whatever the case might be? The website is futuremen.org and, and there's information about what we do and how to get in touch with us. Um, so please go there. And also uh, LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn, it's just futuremen. The Agenda Dad, which I've mentioned a couple of times, that is an open forum. So anybody can come in and, and they can listen in on the conversations. And how often do you have those sort of sessions? So they're they're not scheduled regularly. It's about working everything around the speakers, but, but we promote them through uh, LinkedIn. So just follow the channels and uh, yes. you'll see where the next one is. And also, I suppose if anybody was interested, we have our YouTube channel as well, Future Future Men, and we share case studies there, which highlight the good work that we're doing. Thank you. And we put all that in the show notes as well. So thank you. And really, thank you again for inviting me here today. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Feel free to reach out to Volker or David via our website, www.manupdown.com or podcast at manupdown.com with any feedback or to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Hear you again soon.